A couple weeks ago, an American influencer was deported from Bali. She had been selling an ebook online on how to move to Bali during the pandemic. There are a lot of layers to this story, but I think what I found most interesting about it was how Indonesians responded to it on social media. Many Indonesians voiced that they felt this influencer was misrepresenting life in Bali, and that she was able to do that because she, as a foreigner, had privilege there. There are many stories like this that have emerged all over Southeast Asia over the last decade. Stories of tourists being arrested or deported for disrespectful behavior or for breaking laws. Today, we're going to explore why and how this happens. And spoiler alert, much of it has to do with white and Western privilege. So before we get started, I just have to say, if you love this podcast and want to support it, you can do that on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. So check us out there. Joining me today to chat are Sapphire and Crystal from the Effort Go Travel podcast. They are fellow Canadians and, of course, travel addicts. Welcome. Thank Hi, you. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have to get to, to the bottom of something first. On your show, you introduce yourselves as Sapphire and Crystal, but I actually figured out that that's not your real names. Can you tell us the story here? Yeah, so... um. Our originally our branding, you know, we were trying to figure out what we wanted our brand to be. And um, we wanted like a very unfiltered female perspective. So talking about travel from a very unfiltered female perspective. And we figured that to match that we needed stripper names, kind of, you know, something that's that's gonna be a little risque. I, I don't know, Sapphire, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, that's basically the story like we played with like a dozen other concepts of what we would be and like what we would talk about and it's kind of lost in time the origin story of why we chose such trippery names (laughs) (laughs) I love it because I have two friends that I travel with a lot like we go on usually pre-pandemic we would go on one trip a year and they're my two closest friends and every trip we go on we always come up with aliases that we use the entire trip just because we think it's like fun to embrace like a made-up name um so I myself have traveled across Asia including several countries in Southeast Asia and tourist behavior and tourist privilege is something that my partner and I discussed on the regular, especially when we were in Southeast Asia. And that was frankly because we noticed it a lot. Southeast Asia especially is a super popular backpacking trail, likely because it doesn't cost very much to get there. And there's also lots of tourism infrastructure for getting around, um, which means it's a pretty easy region to travel. And there's also lots of opportunities to meet people and to party. And you can do it all on a budget. So for all those reasons, I think that particular region in the world has turned into a very popular spot for backpackers. One of the popular spots on this trail is this town in Laos called Vang Vang. Do either of you, have you heard of this town? No, no. Okay, okay, cool, because I'm going to tell you the entire story of this town. First of all, if you Google it, there's plenty of coverage describing how locals in Bang Bang became frustrated that their town evolved into a hotspot for tourists to party. Bang Bang became a popular spot for tourists in the early 2000s. 
And that's because of one particular activity that you can do there, which is river tubing. Basically, you rent for just a few bucks a tube and you're driven up this road and then you're dropped into this river and you can float all the way down the river back into the center of town. And all along the banks of this river, there are bars and you spend all afternoon tubing from bar to bar, drinking and partying. And it became really infamous because aside from the bars, like near all the bars, there would be rope swings and stuff going into the river. And as a result, there were a lot of deaths because if you mix drinking and water and sketchy sports like that or sketchy like stunts like that, of course, there are going to be accidents. Back in 2011, this town drew a lot of attention because they recorded 27 tourist deaths. And all of them were associated with river tubing gone wrong. So when this became publicized, it drew a lot of criticism. And the Laotian government responded by ordering the closure of many of the river bars. So nowadays, you can still do river tubing, but it's super tame. It's more about just like relaxing and floating down the river. And overall, Vang Vang has shifted its tourist tourism emphasis to adventure activities. So now there's like a lot of other things you can do, like waterfall repelling and hiking. And in an article from The Guardian, a local Laotian explained that the shift was super important for the town because he and other locals wanted to preserve the mountains of Vang Vang, the river and the culture for the future. So when my partner and I got to Vang Vang, the crackdowns had already happened a couple years previously, but it was interesting because even during that time, even though the crackdowns had happened, it was still known as this town that you party in. And we went really just because it was like a popular spot to stop and it did look beautiful. So we were like, okay, we'll just drop by for two days, see what we think of it. And one of the first things that we noticed was all the signage that was around town. There were signs everywhere asking tourists to respect dress codes and to dress modestly. And I guess what spurred these signs is the fact that tourists were seen often walking around town in bathing suits rather than covering up well in public. And this was quite unique. Like we hadn't seen this anywhere else in Southeast Asia. Like it was very obvious evidence that people in the town were frustrated because why else would you be putting up these signs? And what I think is interesting about the story of this town, Vang Vang, is how it demonstrates how tourism can do damage. Initially, the town's identity as a tourist hotspot really benefited the locals, especially economically. When tourists started coming on mass, locals saw an opportunity to build businesses that could profit and they could benefit their families and communities. But it also resulted in a culture of backpacker excess that conflicted with Laotian values and cultural norms. There was a lot of excessive drinking in public, walking around in little clothing, and these are behaviors that are not considered acceptable in Laotian culture. But tourists were doing it anyway. So... I think this story is important because it shows how there's such a line between the economic benefits of tourism and the detrimental impact of tourism. So with all that said, does the story of Vang Vang bring up any similar things that the two of you have witnessed on your own travels or in your own experiences? Yeah, definitely. So I'm of um, Philippine descent, and a lot of our pristine beaches, like before the 80s, were like really, really amazing, like on par with what you would see in Thailand, or I would say even better than Hawaii. <laughs> 
So tourism um, reached a spike in the early 2000s in the Philippines, in particular a place called uh, Boracay. And the beaches and the local communities there quickly became gentrified. Um, and the sewage infrastructure couldn't really handle the tourist influx, and it literally seeps through the roads and, and the, the seawall there. And the locals um, around that are actually from there uh, still live pretty poorly, like pretty low so socioeconomic status, because the tourist dollars weren't actually directly contributing to the local economy there, but rather to the pockets of multinational hotels and like expat businesses as well. What you were describing <laughs> actually um, also exists in the Philippines um, and it's called canyoneering. It was basically waterfall repelling. <laughs> I think I should have died at least three times on that trip. <laughs> like, uh, like my shoe soles like wore off. It was it was a mess. Uh, I was told to jump jump in spots that were surrounded by pretty spiky rocks. <laughs> and to, to to be really careful because it could be actually fatal and everything was like to our own risk, like uh, with the sign waivers and everything. But I think there were a couple incidents there too, but I don't think it's caught wind yet for like a big tourist industry to take advantage of that. A lot of locals are actually still take, are largely using that <laughs> um, attraction instead of actual tourists. And another example is that I regrettably rode on elephants in Thailand before I actually knew the ethics behind doing this kind of thing. And while I was doing that, I was also guilted into buying ivory, like a tiny piece of ivory from the handler. And his justification was that the elephant was like 60 and died of natural causes. And that the 300 bots was basically peanuts for me, but could, he, could, could feed his family for a couple of days. I begrudgingly bought that story and also the ivory. <laughs> and thankfully it was stolen before I could fly to Thailand um, in my hostel so I wasn't arrested by Thai customs. Yeah, like you don't really see locals there riding elephants. Like they're definitely catering to the big tourism dollars, even though it exploits animals there as well. I mean we've we've actually done an entire episode about that because it's like it's it's difficult because as a tourist you only see what you see, and sometimes it's very hard to see what's going on behind the scenes, and you only hear what you're being told, and it's hard to fact check that when you're on a trip and like have this opportunity. I think like that's changed a lot just in the last like three to five years that people have become much more aware about riding elephants and how to go about animal tourism more responsibly. And so the story about Vang Vang, I think, also points a lot to privilege because obviously tourists felt that when they went to Vang Vang, it was just like open season. They could just behave however they wanted to behave and do whatever they wanted to do. So I wanted to ask if you think that the privilege of foreign travelers is impacting or shaping communities in Southeast Asia and how so. I definitely think so. And uh, privilege comes in different forms, like Western white privilege when they travel to Southeast Asia. A previous podcast episode that we talked about, we talked about um, passport privilege, like language privilege, and basically how like white proximity and the color of your skin uh, grants you better access to resources when you are traveling. 
your passport alone, it, like having a Canadian passport, you have so much access. Yeah, we were talking about white privilege, but、uh, in terms of travel, you can have other types of privilege, such as passport privilege that Sapphire just mentioned, as well as language privilege. Passport privilege,、uh, Sapphire just explained, it's it's a privilege you have、um, that kind of determines. Like how easy it is for you to acquire a visa when you want to travel somewhere, and then in terms of language privilege, I mean obviously in- English is the international language. So if you were born in a country where that is the language that you acquire,、um, like since birth or just through education, then you have that privilege as well because、uh, it doesn't matter where you travel to, you can pretty much rely on that language to communicate. And、uh, like places like the Philippines. They ascribe morality, like a sense of morality, to your English proficiency. Like, so if you can't speak that well, and that kind of that kind of implies your socioeconomic status, because people who have access to English, like you're you're wealthy, basically. And when when foreigners come in, it's like the the source of <laughs> the source of that culture that we're trying to emulate. So it's like there, there's a certain association. With even even if、um, you're melanated like myself, if you speak English, that kind of diminishes the fact that you're brown. <laughs> like you, you that, that's like an extra step in the ladder, basically. If you're if you're traveling, and like this was something that we talked about when we were in Laos, especially because we noticed that like my partner and I, like whenever we travel, we have this thing where we say, okay, we're going to dress. In the way that like local people dress, and so actually in most of Southeast Asia, we would notice that like people wear long pants and they wear t-shirts. They cover their shoulders. Like people dressed pretty modestly, and yet it was like once you were in a hostel or in like a tourist center, it was like a different world because tourists would just dress like however they wanted to dress. And it seemed like it created this assumption amongst tourists that like it's okay to dress that way there. You don't need to follow the cultural norms. Whereas we would always think about like, okay, isn't it? Shouldn't we be doing as the locals do, like out of respect because we are guests here? And it was just curious to me how that became so acceptable. I guess like I wonder how you get to a place where it's okay for like tourists to. On mass, be behaving a certain way that, like, obviously isn't acceptable by the local culture, but they are never challenged on it. It seemed like it seemed to me like that was privilege speaking. It was like no one would ever call you out for dressing or walking around like in a bikini top because you were white, and so that gave you privilege. Like you were exempt from this expectation that other people have culturally. I'm not sure. Like that's just me. Spewing my own like thoughts on it, but what, like, what would you say? I can actually kind of relate in a way. You know, I I do see that white people、um, in Taiwan that I've seen, right? They get passes. They don't get judged if they don't really follow the local culture. And for myself, when I travel, for example, when I went to Germany、uh, for a couple months, and then I was trying to. Well, because I wanted to move there, so I wanted to kind of get a sense of what life would be like there. And I was, I was so self conscious about following all the rules. Like when I went to the supermarket, I was so scared. I was like watching everybody and making sure that I do what everybody else is doing because I was so afraid of doing one wrong thing. And it's like, you know, I I would make myself as an Asian look bad. 
Yeah, so it's kind of like the reverse of that power dynamic because it's like you, um, even if you were a tourist in like a white majority kind of country, you're the one who is, who is finding yourself adapt. But if it was the other way around, it's just like their own status quo that they're coddled into maintaining, which is pretty interesting. And that also like feeds into the whole um, resort town kind of thing. Because like when you when you go to Tulum or those like resort towns in Mexico, you see these like Western kind of bubbles of people like staying and jumping between like all inclusive resorts um, and not really contributing to local economies. It's more to the corporations that are like receiving the local communities there. Yeah, I would definitely liken it to to resort town culture. And just like on the note of like your experience, Crystal, in Germany, it just makes me think about like, and this is definitely the sense that I got in Southeast Asia, especially. It was like white people don't ever have to consider or like fear that their behavior will be used as a racist weapon against them. We just never have to walk around with that fear. I think that pretty much um, sums up what I was trying to say. So I guess that would be like another way that we experience privilege or that white people experience privilege when they're traveling really anywhere when it comes down to it. Yeah, not just white people, but like even like whiteness too, which is like the second best thing. So you talked about it a bit in your episode, and I wanted to ask you here as well. Why why is it so important to both of you, and why should it be important to really everyone um, to acknowledge how privilege factors into not just examples like Fang Bing, but into travel in general? I think it's just to be a respectful tourist, right? Like you are in their country, their communities. It's like you should be able to adapt and just check yourself and your behavior and be aware of how they live compared to you and try to be sensitive navigating that. You know, also, I think part of traveling is learning other cultures. So, I mean, what is the point of traveling if you're just going to do whatever you want? Mm-hmm. So, okay, before we discuss more, I thought it would be good to sort of nail down an explanation of white privileges, just in case any of our listeners aren't aware. And then if you could tell us like how white privilege, like your thoughts on it and how you see it at work, both at home and abroad. So I think it's it's kind of a difficult definition to define without bringing up like a universal experience shared between like a lot of POCs that acknowledge it. <laughs> Crystal, like how how would you how would you define white privilege in accordance to your own experiences? Um, so my own experience, um, I mean, obviously I'm I'm not a white person, <laughs> um, but I think um, just from my interactions with other white people and also like the white guys that I've dated, um, how I feel is that to me, it seems like they don't have to prove themselves as much um, and they can just gain like automatic respect from people 
Um, and then what they say is just taken seriously, whereas I have to try a little bit harder to be heard, to be taken seriously. That's kind of how, yeah, how it is for me. Yeah. Like Crystal said, it's like, it's like being granted like career, financial, social, like you name it, like credibility by default. And it's especially prevalent in countries with histories of being colonized. Um, like I mentioned, like how whiteness and like beauty standards, language, culture is praised and rewarded. And I mean, as a white person, I can say like personally, it is absurd to me how long it took me myself to understand like how I was experiencing and benefiting from white privilege. And I think that's like one of the problems is that we aren't people aren't educated about this, like as they're growing up, maybe that's changing now. But I find it quite shocking how long it takes for white people to come around to the idea that like, no, you do need to examine your your own privilege, because like, it's impacting other people. But it's just I think what I think what the problem might be is that it's hard for people to acknowledge a system that's benefiting them. It takes a lot of unlearning and work to do that. So I don't know. My hope is that like in discussions like this, we can encourage people to think a little bit more about the way they're experiencing privilege. So the Vang Vieng example, I think, demonstrates a lot of like how these little benefits and privileges that Western and white people have in traveling Asia, particularly in Southeast Asia, because like we said, they they can engage in behavior that would not be acceptable by local. Are there other, like in your episode, you had talked about these like benefits and privileges that you've observed white people's having yourselves when you yourself are in Asia. So could we talk about a few of those little things and see like, I'm, I'm curious if any of our listeners will, will listen to this and be like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize like that was a privilege I was benefiting from. Uh, yeah. So I think in our episode, um, some of the examples we gave was uh, took place in Taiwan. I talk about this with some of my friends and also my brother who lives there. So, so he told me a lot of these these stories, just like he's seen um, online from like other people sharing these types of stories. So, uh, one of the examples is that you might see a white person just loitering around in the subway stations. And then that's kind of seen as just, just fine. You know, it's like, oh, this person, maybe he or she is lost. Maybe we should help them. But then if it's somebody that's like a Southeast Asian, not a white person, they would be seen in, in a negative way. Like, oh, this person, is this person homeless? Why are they here? Like such an eyesore. Can we get rid of, <laughs> well, not can we get rid of this, but kind of. <laughs> yeah. And. You know, white people tend to be portrayed very positively in the media, and it's it almost seems like they're just placed on a pedestal. So one example of this is that there was this news reporting on like a white person getting a job and marrying a Taiwanese woman. And I was talking about this with my brother, um, and he was like, yeah, why, why is this newsworthy? <laughs> why are they reporting on this? They would never report on, say, a Southeast Asian person getting a job, marrying a woman. And I mean, an Asian person getting a job and marrying a white woman in America, that, that would never be reported. Right. So it just seems like this type of story is, it's almost seen as, you know, like positive for the society that it's worth praising. Yeah. Yeah, basically, it's like, 
white people are praised for their features, like Eurocentric features are really upheld on a certain pedestal, especially in Southeast Asian countries. Like things to do with like white culture and aesthetics, it brings you further in life <laughs> for in terms of like access. But like white people themselves, they're they're given more free things. They have uh, way less barriers to access resources just from how they look alone. Yeah, actually, I can share a personal story. I have been to Taiwan. And when I went, I was there staying with a friend of mine, someone that I'd grown up with, who had been living in Taiwan for, I think she'd been there then like three years. And I'll never forget like going camping with her and a bunch of her friends who were all expats. They were all like, Western. Some of them were from Australia and they all were teachers and we went camping and the amount of like stuff they did that I knew was illegal in Taiwan. So for example, like they had a lot of drugs on them. And at one point they told us, oh, like we shouldn't have these because we could get arrested, but like we probably won't be. So don't worry about it. And my partner and I, like the entire trip, we're just like, what, what is happening? Like, we're not comfortable with this. These people are just like walking around doing whatever they want. And it was this whole community of like, basically just like white people that were living in Taiwan, living this like life that was really awesome compared to the life that you would be able to live at home, like with the same amount of money. Um, which brings me to this next sort of like related topic that I thought I would mention because you mentioned in one of your episodes, how white privilege becomes so evident in Asia, in the nomad community. Um, so for example, you talked about how white people who move to Asia tend to have a much easier time getting jobs and they're paid much more than a local or even a non-white foreigner would be for that job. So could you share like what you talked about around that issue of these nomad communities that are living around Asia? Yeah, so there are quite a few, I guess, of these examples. And one of the recent ones that my brother told me about was uh, this um, somebody from Eastern Europe who received no formal English education. And then they got an English teaching job uh, with a salary that was $1,500 higher than a Canadian born Chinese who obviously whose first language is English. Yeah, it's, it's really about the optics, you know, of having just like a white person. So even if you have a higher qualification, but if you're not white, you will be paid lower. On that note, though, like I just, I just want to say that I think in general, and so this is not related to um, Asia, but just in general, I think that it's easier for white people to find a job just in general. I remember reading some statistics that said uh, like Chinese or Middle Eastern sounding names have to submit over 60% more applications than people with uh, Anglo sounding names. And then also in the States, they found that black applicants have to submit 50% more applications to get the same number of interviews as white applicants. And I myself, um, so I'm doing this startup right now and we needed to find people for like some of the work that we need to do. So for example, like backend programmers and such. And I noticed that we've received several applicants who would use 
like a fake English name and a fake picture of a white person, and even tried to mimic a white accent. Um, it was very strange. So this one guy we interviewed, he had like a generic photo of a white person. His name was David. Um, I won't say his last name for privacy reasons, but it was like a very English-sounding last name. And then he said that he lived in the UK. When we interviewed him, he didn't have his camera on. Um, he had broken English, <laughs> um, and then he was trying very hard to mimic the accent. And it turned out he didn't even live in the UK, so everything was just a lie. Also, the other day, I received another email from a woman who was trying to um, offer us their services. So this. This company, when I looked into it, it was based in India. But this this woman, she had her name in the email was Samantha Smith. <laughs> A lot of that going on that I noticed. Yeah, so it's not like this issue is just prevalent in the nomad or expat community. It's like no, like this is happening here at home as well. Yeah, I think it's just that it, it is true that yeah, if you have an English sounding name or if you're a white person, it's easier to get a job. And I really think that people that don't think we have this problem. That don't think we need to create more opportunities for, you know, POCs. I I just don't even know what to say. <laughs> it's because they benefit too much from the current system. <laughs> So we've touched on lots of ways in which um, white people specifically are experiencing privilege, like not just traveling in Asia, but traveling or being at home as well. So given that, do you have any tips for how people can check their own privilege? First thing is to acknowledge that it exists. <laughs> Maybe acknowledge any fragility that comes forward in that kind of introspection, like Really, really ask yourself, like, why you're feeling that way. I, I would recommend reading Right Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. It basically illustrates, like, where the, where the fragility kind of comes from, like the pushback of uh, saying that white people have privilege um, and how that kind of pushback up upholds racist kind of structures by basically obfuscating internal racism into, like, whataboutisms, into, like, oh, but... I grew up like a poor white person. Like, how do I have privilege? Like that kind of whole narrative. How basically some white people who are threatened by a shift in an, in, in an all white kind of status quo and their power dynamic, but don't really, can't really see it. <laughs> yeah, like when, when efforts towards like equality and parity for brown, black and Asian people feel like oppression to you, you should probably open up a line of internal questioning <laughs> An example of this is like seeing more diversity in travel spaces, like in van life and in like travel blogs and even like in general, like movies, like, do you feel some type of way about that? <laughs> like, do you feel, dare I say, like threatened, kind of like angry, like, oh, they were probably only hired because they're doing it as like a performative, like affirmative action thing for like their, their diversity quota. Like, is that really what your issue is with it? Because that's another argument, like. There are cases like that where it is performative, but why do you think you only feel that kind of threat? I don't know if I should say threat. Why, why, why do you feel some type of way about it only when a non-white person, like an actual POC is on screen or is represented in different industries? Like why is it only then you feel some type of way? 
Yeah. And I think like threatened is not, I don't think that word is going too far. Like there have been definite examples of people who like clearly do feel threatened, but I think it's such a sliding scale because it can be like a person can react in a way that shows that they feel threatened, but it can also be just like you say, just feeling some type of way. Like even if you have any kind of like reaction or feel like a little bit bothered, really that is like your internal resistance to equity. Just so we have it, could you give like a very basic explanation of like what white fragility really is? Uh, white fragility is when equality and parity for BIPOC people feels like oppression to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good <laughs> definition. <laughs> when equality feels like oppression, that is fragility. <laughs> yeah. Like if you have any kind of reaction to that, I would say like, not even if it just feels oppression, I feel like even if you just have a reaction to it. Yes. Definitely. And then like going back to the original example of Vang Viang and sort of like how we're seeing privilege um, show itself in these backpacker trails in Southeast Asia. For people who want to travel to Southeast Asia, obviously like it's a very popular place to go. People want to go there and they should. Like there are benefits to traveling there, especially for the local economies. But how can people do it in a way that is respectful? So basically not giving money to like hotel corporations, like don't stay at the Hilton, like why not stay in accommodations that are actually run by the local people of color and supporting the, the actual local economy, like shop at the local businesses and restaurants and then do local tours and activities as you're traveling. And if you're trying to get an I don't know, like sometimes people can overcompensate and like want a really quote unquote authentic experience, but then participate in like really exploitative activities like slum tours where you find yourself in someone's living room and it kind of gets human zoo-ish. <laughs> um, even going on those like mission trips, like honey, just like avoid that entirely. <laughs> like and on the subject of going through those like weird ghetto tour. I don't know, like, I find that kind of poverty porny, like, it kind of feeds into the whole industry of, like, white saviorism, where white people will go to these kind of places for social media clout, pose with, like, black and brown children or Asian children, and then, like, leave feeling good about themselves without actually directly impacting to the community in, like, a good way at all. <laughs> it's more for, like, the optics, and it's like, oh, but, like, I'm positioning myself in this, like, quote unquote, third world's uh, like place, like look how good of a person I am, look how, look how virtuous I am. And then they leave and then like nothing was actually impact, nothing, nothing was changed when they do leave basically. Like it's weird. Like I saw that a lot when I was, when I was volunteering in the Philippines, like just, just avoid, just avoid anything like that. Avoid motion trips, avoid going through weird ghetto tours. <laughs> Yeah, we it was a long time ago now. In one of our earlier seasons, we interviewed No White Saviors, which is a campaign dedicated to educating people about um, mission trips and their like colonial aspects and how they impact local communities. And I think it's like important to talk about the fact that like this happens in Asia as well. I think people really associate like the white saviorism phenomenon with Africa when really like it does happen in a lot of other parts of the world. It happens in Central America and Southeast Asia. Like I know I noticed in Southeast Asia, people would go and visit orphanages. And it was so clear that like you should not 
be doing that. <laughs> but people do. And people think that like, it's a good thing that they're going and like spending time with these poor kids that like, need social interaction. And it's like, I, from what I heard, like a lot of those orphanages weren't actual orphanages. It was just a way to like bring in tourism dollars. And so, I don't know, I find like, I notice that people just generally don't do enough research to really understand like where they can have a positive impact in an actually meaningful way. So I think it's, it's important to talk about how these like poverty porn things are happening in Asia as well. Definitely. Like, how would you feel if, like, this weird guy from this foreign country just approaches you for a picture as you're playing as a kid on the street and then, like, leaves? <laughs> like, poses with you and, like, leaves? And it's like we talked about it with No White Saviors, too. It's like, then you've taken that photo and, like, that child will never know what happened to that photo. Like, that child has not given consent for their image to be used in whatever narrative, like, you are going to craft about your experience in Cambodia or wherever it is you happen to have gone. And so I think, like, people just need to think a lot more about these types of actions before they take them, think about the impact that they have. And also, like, on that note, just it's also really good as you're traveling to acknowledge your privilege and there's like a sliding scale to privilege, but even if like you have a lighter complexion and are like white passing, you will likely be treated better. And it's important to not like abuse this privilege and the amount of access that it grants you. Try to do it in a way that doesn't get in the way of other BIPOC getting the, getting the same kind of access. Like many developing countries, like uphold English as a metric for uh, wealth and austerity including my own <laughs> in the Philippines um, because of historical colonial structures and like the, a way that you could not take advantage of the, the privileged disparity is um, if like a tour guide or shop owner is addressing you first when a person of color was clearly in line first, like just redirect them to that person of color. Like it, it could be something as simple as that. And also not engaging in ghetto tours and <laughs> white and other white saviorisms. The other thing like that I personally noticed um, in Southeast Asia, especially was this obsession that a lot of white and Western tourists would have with traveling as cheap as possible. And it would all be, it would always be about like heckling and bartering for the cheapest possible price. And it just seemed really privilegey to me because it was like, it's not that you can't afford to pay the price that this person is asking for. It's that you just are making a game out of traveling for as cheaply as you can. And I always found that that was like, that there was just something off about that um, practice. Southeast Asia is just known as this place that you can go that's um, affordable to travel. And I think people take advantage of that in a way that's like highly problematic. Like you, you hear stories of like tourists that are complaining about like a secret menu for foreigners versus a secret menu for like locals, um, where the menu for, for foreigners will be charged a higher price or even like people in like markets who charge foreigners more. I think they probably do that because of like obviously like the association you have with your tourist dollars, but also I think it comes from a place of contempt because I feel like maybe Western tourists kept doing that kind of thing where they would barter when they clearly had the resources to pay for whatever thing that we're trying to pay for. 
I've also noticed though that like a lot of travelers will view that as them like participating in a local custom. Like they'll justify it by saying, oh no, like this is what the locals do. That you still need to do it in a respectful way, like even if it is the local custom. And I think like I often saw people crossing the line where it went into territory where it was just like, no, like I have the money. I just want to take advantage of basically the fact that you will want to make a sale no matter what. But still wear bikinis anyways. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that covers everything. Is there anything else you guys wanted to touch on? I honestly, I feel like I have to be careful with choosing my words. (laughs) I just, you know, like a lot of these things, um, these experiences, stories, uh, there's things that I've I've heard or I've seen myself. Like I don't actually, I've never actually conducted a study or whatever. And I just... I feel like I, I have to be so careful so that, you know, I don't say something that people are going to be like, oh, that, that doesn't sound right. That's ridiculous. And that's fragility. Because <laughs> I'll just say, like, I think that's white people especially use that to like as like an argument that it's not real, that like racism isn't real. But the thing is, like, when you're hearing these same anecdotes from literally an entire community of people, it's like, that's not anecdote anymore. That's experience. It's people sharing their experience. So, yeah. That's literally data. And it's like, it, it sucks when your lived experience is completely diminished, where they ask you for proof. And I'm like, how do I give you proof of what I've experienced? <laughs> like, do you want, like, my exact data points and, like, my diary that day when I experienced overt racism? <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to give you proof. <laughs> and then it's also, like, at a certain point, it's it's a lot of emotional labor. Like, I, I can't speak to, like, the experience obviously being a white woman I can't speak to the experience of racism but I know in my own life trying to talk to often men about my experiences of misogyny is very mentally exhausting and so I imagine that same like emotional labor is felt when talking about issues like this as well. Yes and it's like there's crossover between being a POC person and also like a woman so it's like I don't want to say double because like not everyone's experiences are the same, but it's it's just especially frustrating with like a, with different angles, um, with your experience being diminished. Like no, that's wrong. Just basically being gaslighted into denying it. <laughs> yeah, Sapphire and Crystal, thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, do you want to share with everyone where they can find you? You can find us on Instagram at Ethical Travel. And also our podcast is called Ethical Travel. And it's on pretty much any of your favorite streaming platforms. You can find us. Just search Ethical Travel. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lore. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. <laughs>